continuing the summary of the book of Revelation, or the book of Revelation being a summary of Scripture, it obviously gives much greater light, much greater insight into how we are to view events of Scripture. You see, if you're in the midst of a particular epoch where the revelation from heaven is of a certain focus, in the midst of that, it's impossible to see what the end of the matter is going to be, especially when there are several steps in the future to unfold this revelation. For example, uh, Daniel was given a series of brilliant revelation, revelations about the end of the age. They concerned things he did not understand. And in fact, when he queried the spiritual uh, entity that was giving him uh, understanding about these matters, he was told at the very end, it's okay, Daniel, my paraphrase, it's okay, Daniel, these are not for you. Uh, go your way, you'll sleep in the dust of the earth and you'll be raised in the last day. And at that point, you will understand what, is, what would be impossible for you to understand now. And yet, Daniel was being given what amounted to God committing Himself anew to the promises He had made that He intended to fulfill in part through Israel. Yet Israel was in captivity and as far removed from being able to fulfill the purposes of God as you could imagine. But it was important for God to state for the record being Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, it was impossible for him not to fulfill what he had promised, even though those he had selected for that purpose were deeply um, enmeshed in Babylonian captivity and unable on their own without the sovereign intervention of God to be any more than Babylonian slaves. So Daniel was given a picture of what would happen, but there was no way for him to relate it to his present existence. In fact, he was, at the, he was living at a time when the sequence of these events to unfold progressively until the end of the age, which by now would be, what, 2700 years? after the fact, um, when the sequence of those events would, would have been begun with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. John the Apostle subsequently wrote about portions of what Daniel had been shown, but even he was not allowed to live at the end of the things he saw and wrote about. So he wrote about them and they provide for us light for the future. It's been 2,000 years since 
John spoke of, a people being drawn from every tribe, tongue, language and nation, part of that heavenly vision that he was given beginning in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. That event has still not occurred, uh, but it is occurring in our time and the end thereof is one that we cannot simply guess at but need to wait upon the revelation. We have enough light at this point to know what will happen. What we don't have is the revelation of the specific steps in between. So until and unless those steps are revealed to us, we simply will be, if we, if we speak about these matters, it would largely be conjecture. But that said, having been as it were given the landing lights, we're able to determine by the Holy Spirit what the contributing events are at any epoch in which we live, any season in which we live, what the, what the contributing events are leading to. Now, again, as a summary, as a book of summaries of the rest of Scripture, the book of Revelation gives us vastly more insight uh, than any other book into both what has preceded and what will come subsequently. As I said, in, there is a descending order of things and just like it took um, 4,000 years from the introduction of the sacrifice of a lamb to the coming of Christ and another 2,000 years since then to understand the spiritual man that is shaped in the image of Christ. Uh, and now, it, now we are better able to understand that He is the rod and staff which is both the measuring stick, the authenticator and the support of that result. So he, the rod that He uh, holds is, is unbendable because it's a standard, so it's called a rod of iron. And just as He Himself was subject to a rod of iron from the Father, which is that He had to embrace the divine standard without exception, without deviation. So He learned obedience by the things He suffered, like we must learn obedience through the things we suffer. That it was not possible for the cup to pass from Him because it was part of what for Him was confirmation to a divine standard. So He had to drink the cup because He was conformed to the divine standard that rendered Him in the result thereof the way, the truth and the life. 
He was the way the Father is. He was the truth of who the Father is. He was the life that was derived from the presence of God and sustained by the Spirit of God in the present age. All these things now attenuate to us and become our rod of iron in this life. Now, in this life, pursuing God in this manner of being conformed to the standard of a rod of iron, pursuing God in that way will consume every aspect of our being that is contrary to that standard. And we must willingly give in to it. And when we do, we will have been conformed to the standard of Christ. Now the point of being added to the body of Christ is that this is the locus in quo, the location in which we encounter the reality of Christ. Apart from the body of Christ, there's no encountering the standard of God. There's no frame of reference that would allow for that to be a meaningful exercise. Once you're added to the body of Christ, you learn obedience by the things you suffer like he had to learn obedience by the things he suffered and both he and us, the head and the body, are conformed to the same standard which is the standard of a son as put forth by God, pursuant to the requirement that he has in the earth a man in his image and in his likeness. Now those who fail to submit to that standard, a standard variously described as the brightness of His glory and the exact representation of His being, being conformed as one being pressed in a mold in the manner in which coins are stamped with the image of the King. These are all metaphors used to define being conformed to the standard of Christ once you're put in the body of Christ. So if, if, that be, if that becomes the result of our earthly life, there is no need in the millennium for us to be also again conformed to a standard uh, described as a rod of iron. Rod being measuring stick, iron being unbendable. So it's a non-negotiable standard because God intends to have a man in his image and likeness. And that man evinces the character of God as put on display in this world by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who refuse that have to be made into that inasmuch as they've received Christ and are now sons of God but still have free will and still may refuse at certain points to be conformed to this standard. Doesn't mean they're lost, doesn't mean they're going to hell. It means they're unfinished. So, you see, there's a point for the millennium and there's a reason it lasts a thousand years. It's the manner in which the order of heaven descends into the earth progressively. Now, keep in mind that a thousand years for God is just a day. So it may be defined as the day of the Lord. In the millennium, you have the day of the Lord for the confirmation of sons to the standard of divine rectitude as evinced by the person of Christ and 
You've got those who have already been conformed who rule with Christ to produce this standard in all the sons of God. So what happens when that is done, which is the principal point and purpose of the millennium? Well, then God has a people drawn from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, just like He said. Why does it take a thousand years? Why couldn't God just do that, snap as it were of His divine fingers and everybody is there? It's because of the nature of what God is attempting to create or produce in those He has received as sons. The nature of it is it has to be voluntary. They have to be, they have to agree. Otherwise, you will have enforced compliance and that never allows you to rule, that never allows you to carry the character of God because then it would always be discretionary on your part like it was with the original Adam. The whole of creation and the time that it has taken from Adam to Christ is what it took for the fullness of this extreme departure from God to be reached. And the return journey has so far taken 2,000 years, which shows that Christ is able to redeem the time. But then what is left unfinished will only take 1,000 years. So it's a mistake for us to think that everything spoken of in the book of Revelation happens pretty much in sequence of days of time. No, they happen according to heavenly uh, determinations and they take the time that God has allotted. At the end of the millennium, or from beginning of the thousand year period to end of the thousand year period, certain imperatives are designed for that time and they will be accomplished during that time. I'll address that when I summarize more thoroughly uh, what we're looking at in the book. Um, And I will do that after I get through the first five verses of Revelation 22. But a lot of this now is simply setting up the understanding so we may properly understand what is being uh, presented and utilized here. After the, the thousand years are done, finished, all of what creation was supposed to produce will have been produced, a man in the image and likeness of God. And the body of Christ then becomes a further evolution of its spiritual reality. The body of Christ used to be the corpus of the man Jesus, the physical corpus of the man Jesus and certain things were required to be accomplished in that physical corpus. The nature of resurrection, which implies death of course, is transformation 
a metamorphosis. Nothing ever comes back that has died, nothing ever comes back from death in the same fashion or manner or form in which it was planted, in which it was buried. Resurrection always represents an exponentialization of the thing from its present form into what was contained within the form. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life and why when God established the order of creation, He defined it along the lines of, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. Fruit trees yielding fruit whose seed is in itself, herbs yielding yielding fruit with seed in itself and it was so. I think there were three repeated versions of this in, in the story of creation in Genesis 1, telling us what Jesus would later claim, that He is that principle in physical manifestation. What I'm doing here is I'm expanding upon this principle because it's everywhere in the book of Revelation and, and it summarizes and exponentializes that which we, are, we have been in, introduced to previously, to the point of the thoroughness and finality of those expansions. So one of the things you must get used to is that even the book of Revelation requires a thousand years from the return of the Lord to the rendering forth or the setting forth of the final order that of, of result that God had in mind when He created man, when He created the heavens and the earth and when He created man. So I want to walk you through now several of these cyclical and final results. So let's, let's begin with water. He said, and He showed me, Revelation 22, 1, and He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. You'll quickly note that the throne of God is the same as the throne of the Lamb. I'll expand on that in a little bit. But for our purposes now, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, and it proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. How did the book of Genesis begin? It begins with water. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth, now the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now that's before anything is created, that's the status quo, the status quo ante. God didn't create the waters. He began to form them 
by putting a firmament in the midst of them. By that, separating them into two realities within creation. That's what God did on the second day. But the first day, He declared His intention and looking to the end of the matter from the beginning, He declares it was so. What was the first thing God established? Light. And I say established rather than created because we know from the book of 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, that this was a reference to God revealing the secret intents of God that existed before the creation through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to appear in the face of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This is the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So when God said, let there be light, He was pointing to revelation that would come in the fullness of time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our entire understanding of what was going on in the mind of God is not based in conjecture, but based in what Jesus told us. Hence He's called the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was was God, according to John 1. And we see in in Genesis chapter 1, we see the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Word. The Word is Christ. In the New Testament, He'd be referred to as the Logos of God, which is to say, uh, the Logos there is a study of God through the revealed person or through Christ, the the Son of God revealing the person of the Father, which is why He said, I've come to show you the Father. Now these things are elementary. We We shouldn't have to be laboring this late in the game over that and for heaven's sake we ought never to be, we ought not to be saying at this point that these are deep things. These are the low-hanging fruit. The deep things are what Revelation points to and presumes you you know the elementary things. But even as I say this, the sad fact, the pitiful, pathetic fact is most people who have spent their lives going to church have received no instructions in how to understand the Scriptures. Stumbling around in darkness, being those who follow the blind, the blind and the blind, blind leading the blind. So in this first chapter of Scripture and in the last chapter of Scripture, there is this perfect symmetry of the reference to 
water. Reference to water. God separated between the waters in the second day of creation. First day was He set up the means by which we would ultimately be given the understanding of what He was doing and that means is a person because the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants and He he made it known by sending His angel to reveal it to His servant John. This is not Jesus giving a revelation, this is God's revelation given to Jesus consistent with the fact that He said, let there be light and that light is the lives of men gloried in the person of Christ so that God would let us know in the face of Jesus Christ the knowledge of the glory of God as revealed in the, in the person of Christ. So the revelation is what Jesus received from the Father, gave to an angel who revealed it to John, this was the angel who followed John through the heavens and answered his questions. So it's how Jesus is revealed, how Jesus is fulfilling the statement that when God declared in, in, as the first act of creation, let there be light, He intended that this illumination should come exclusively through Christ who in turn sent the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us so we may know and understand. So first thing was light, the second thing was the dividing of waters. Now the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the, over the, surface of the waters. This is before creation. The second, thing, the second day of creation is where God divides waters from waters putting some in the heavens and putting some on the earth. There's a physical manifestation of water on the earth in terms of rivers, lakes and seas and there is a revealing of waters above the heavens, they're described as a sea of glass, clear as crystal, the center of which, at the center of which sits the throne of God and the Lamb. It tells us that the waters above the heavens depicted as a sea of glass are ruled over by as in a central reality the one who sits upon the throne. That is why the water in heaven always proceeds from or surrounds the throne of God because it's a different thing. 
It's about the Word of God or the authority of God that holds creation in place, heaven and earth. So, wherever Jesus is, there is a reuniting of the water in heaven and the water on earth. And that's why it's called here in the book of Revelation, the water of life. Do you know what that word for life is? It's the word zoe, Z-O-E, zoe. And it represents eternal life or life of the Spirit, as opposed to suke, the life of the soul, or bios, the life of the body. It is the water that Jesus says that sustains eternal life. This is what He said to the woman at the well. Woman, if you knew who asked you for water, you'd ask Him for the water that springs up into eternal life, which if you have, you will never thirst again. I want to unpack further the characteristics of this water of life, because in the final analysis, they're reconnected. They're reconnected in the city of God, with the throne of God and the Lamb, and they represent that which sustains a people forever. I'll pause here and we'll continue this discussion momentarily. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you then. Bye-bye.